they got there. Some of the nature of the things that they're dealing with isn't always um, child-friendly or, or isn't always necessarily things that um, maybe can be announced from the front when you've got young ears listening. But Africa and some of these different places is that whenever you get off the plane, there's just a smell, and it's amazing. It's just there, There's places that just smell differently to anywhere else. Uh, you go to India... There's a smell in India, uh, and it's unlike anywhere else in the world. You go to Africa, there's, there's a smell, and, it's, and there's unique things that go on there. And yet, as we come to our service this morning, I want to ask you a question. And I don't want anyone shouting out answers, okay? This is not a participation I- event here. But I want to ask you a question. The question is, do you smell? Now, I, I know, I understand, okay? Now, maybe you're saying thing, and I don't smell, but... There's somebody near me that does. Or maybe you're thinking, well, you know, you're looking at maybe the teenager in your house and thinking, well, he's done nothing but smell for about four years now. But, you know, smells are not something that we generally think about until you're hit with either a very nice smell or a very bad smell. And so only when you get to the extremes that you kind of go, okay, I'm thinking about this now, I'm processing it. We are, Ruth and I are out of the stage of parenting now where our children are wearing nappies, thankfully. Um, It was not a fun stage, but when you have multiple children over for playdates, there is normally at some point an aroma that descends across the room. And then the most bizarre thing happens, and if you were kind of just watching it, it just seems strange because adults start picking up children and smelling them. (laughs) Not mine! (laughs) Must be one of yours, or whatever. And we try and find the culprit. It's a bad smell. For others, it might be when someone's cooking fish or whatever. For me, it's cheese and onion crisps. I know I should be kicked out of Northern Ireland for for saying something like that there, but I hate the smell of cheese and onion crisps. Uh, But that's just, I'm just being honest. I'm confessing this to you this morning. But you know, there's wonderful, wonderful smells. Uh, If you remember that day that was dry this week, Monday, Tuesday maybe, um, it's June, isn't it great? I was walking the dog, and I got hit with a wonderful smell. I was walking along, somebody's barbecuing. You know, and it was like the cartoons, you know, where they just kind of float the smell, kind of just carries you. I was waiting to make a new friend. Um, now, by the way, actually, I should say, uh, there, is, there is nothing better than a barbecue, but uh, we're having a barbecue here at the church on uh, June's, is it July 16th? Is it 16th? 14th? It's, it's that Sunday, just after the 12th, and uh, we're having a barbecue here after the morning service. Uh, there'll be details going up for sign-up and numbers and all the rest of it. Keep it free if you are too. But back, back to this. It's flowers, really. Flowers is where I'm going with this. The smell of flowers, right? We talk about uh, stopping to smell the roses on life's journey. We, we talk, you know, it, it's, it's flowers that little girls run along and pick up uh, throughout the summer, you know, and they throw it into a tub of water and says, Daddy, do you want to smell my perfume? And then they throw this flower water over you and it's like, oh, thanks, I'm sticky now. But let me ask you a question that no one should really ask a group of civilized people like yourselves. Do you smell? And if so, how much do you smell? It sounds like a weird question, but that's what today is going to be about. We are going to pick up on this idea that as growing Christians, blossoming Christians, fruitful Christians that we're looking at last week, there should be an attractiveness to the world around us. One of the things that living things do best is that they attract things by smell. We should be in a sweet aroma to God. 
Now, we get, have so much to cover in that area, but when you study Scripture, one thing that notice, I really noticed that is that every time it talks about a sweet aroma or a sweet fragrance in Scripture, normally they're not talking about other people. They're not talking about being smelling attractive to the world around us, to unbelievers or to people outside the church. Actually, nine times out of ten, or almost exclusively, really, it's about a sweet aroma to God. How do we smell to God? And so that's going to be the focus this morning. And then we'll pick up uh, at a later stage uh, how to be attractive to the world around us because the church, I think, has a wee bit of a PR problem in terms of what the world thinks of us. How do we be attractive to the world without compromising what we believe? That's why we're doing this one first. A sweet aroma to God, first and foremost. And then from there, we say, right, well, if we're this, then how do we be attractive to the world? So that, that's kind of the, the idea behind it. First of all, there's the smell of victory. Second Corinthians chapter 2 uh, reads like this. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, uh, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who's adequate for these things? Okay, so the picture that Paul is trying to paint to the church in Corinth, in Greece, is that uh, the Roman general is parading his captive soldiers, the prisoners of war, through Rome to present them as spoils of war to the emperor. Okay, so uh, after a successful campaign, the, the generals would lead the troops and lead their captives and lead the spoils of war in a procession through Rome to present them to the emperor. But in Paul's metaphor, instead of the captive soldiers and the prisoners of war being taken to the Colosseum where they'd be fed the lions or put into gladiatorial battles, Paul's metaphor is that these captives are not sentenced to death, but rather they are sentenced to life in Christ and life eternal in heaven. We are those soldiers. We are enemies of God, but now we are adopted into his family. We are his children, and Christ will lead us in procession before God the Father. And that's the metaphor here. But in Rome, what would have happened is that, well, for lots of different reasons, but they would have burnt incense. The main reason, I think, is that if you've had a group of men together for maybe six months or a year or 18 months fighting in the heat of the Mediterranean, they're going to smell. And their horses are going to smell. And the, the injuries and the battles, and the, it, there's going to be a, a nasty smell. So as part of the victory parade, they burnt incense, and there was literally a smell of success that wafted over Rome. Now, part of it was to cover the stink of the reality of battle, but it was also to let everyone know that there is a victory, and there was literally a smell of success that came. And that's the picture Paul's trying to paint for us here. He's telling us that in the same way our Roman general parades the, the, in, in victory with a sweet smell, so too Christ with us is on the march, and there's a sweet smell. Ezekiel 20 verse 41 says, As a pleasing aroma, I will accept you when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you. And I think that's what Paul's referencing here. So whenever I come, uh, when Christ comes and leads us and is going to present us to the Father, there's going to be this aroma, this smell of victory. But here's the thing. 
how sweet the smell really depended on what side you were on in the battle. If you were on the losing side, it didn't smell all that nice. If you were on the winning side, it was sweet and it was wonderful. It was great. Among other things in this text, for us as, as Christians, yes, the Christian life is a battle sometimes. Yes, it is tough. It is hard. Last week we talked about pruning in John 15, and, and it, it was hard. And sometimes our, our commanding officer drills us and disciplines us and, and gets us battle-ready, battle-hardened. And that's part of this metaphor as well. But it is so, so important that you understand something. That as the Christian soldier, we march in victory. There should be an aroma in our hearts that marks us differently to everyone else. There should be a joy because we do not fight so that we might have victory, but we fight from a position of victory already that is ours through Christ. That's why Paul said to the Roman church in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ. We are more than conquerors through Him. There's an aroma, there's a swell, a sweet smell. We can face whatever life throws at us as believers because we already have the victory in Jesus and our joy and our hope and our assurance and our confidence comes not because we think everything, we're going to fix everything, but because we know that in Christ, the victory is already ours. And here's something that's so important to take away from this text. In 1 Corinthians, uh, the church was a mess. And there was lots of reasons for it, but mainly people in the church were trying to please everyone. So it didn't really matter if you were kind of living a holy life or not. It didn't really matter if you were kind of very sinful or not. They were just like, hey, it's grace. It's all about forgiveness. It's fine. And just so these people who kind of really wanted to kind of keep everyone happy, but on the same side of it, they were trying to fight and compete with each other to be spiritual role models and also trying to be the big lads in the city uh, and trying to keep, uh, keep their contacts and keep their popularity up with the people in the stag capital of the area in Corinth. It was a mess. And so you've got people who are kind of in all these different things, balancing a lot of different things and doing it badly. And Paul writes 1 Corinthians, and it was painful for him to write, and it's painful for us to read and he wants to set them right. And, and Second Corinthians is kind of that follow-up letter, seeing how they've got on to taking these things on board. And here in this passage, there's a reminder from him to those people. And he said, remember, God has called us to something that's more amazing than anything that the world has to offer. We are on the victory side. They are not. Make sure you're on the right side. But also, whenever... Um, Whenever we do that, not everyone's going to understand. Not everyone's going to get this. And so there's going to be a smell that for some it is going to be pleasing and sweet, but for others the smell is going to be repulsive. You're not going to please everyone. Because there's going to be people who won't believe the message of Christ. They don't see Christ as precious. They don't see his suffering as a treasure to lay hold of. They don't smell the forgiveness of sinners as something that is satisfying or, or the sweetest fragrance in all the universe. 
To them, it's the smell of death. A man dying on a cross is not a satisfying, it's not pleasing, it's horrific. And they see death, they don't see life, they don't see hope, they don't see future, they don't see joy or victory in Christ, and so they turn away because it doesn't please them. But for others, they look at the cross and they see victory. They see in his death that substitute death that we so desperately needed before God. And so the Son of God dying for us is the fragrance of life. And so we don't turn away. We run towards it and we embrace it and we, we savor it. We savor the death and the resurrection of our Lord. And we treasure him and we embrace him and we live in victory. Smelling Christ is the aroma that gives life. And all that to say, when we live out our lives confident in the victory that is already ours in Christ, that gives a confidence whenever we face the trials. And the trials are still real. The battles are still real. But the outcome is sure. We don't always see it because we're in the battle. But the victory is already won. When we live with that confidence in our lives that releases a fragrance that will get people's attention, but it is an aroma that is pleasing to God because he, un- he looks down and sees a people who understands what the death and life of Christ actually means. Now, there's another way that we can be beautiful um, to God in our aroma. Another way of being beautiful is by being generous. Uh, So we're going to turn to Philippians 4 uh, now. Philippians 4. um, Now, when we talk about generosity, I want to just say this before we get into it. When I talk about generosity, I am not talking exclusively about money. You can be generous with your money and stingy with a lot of other things, and it can still make you a very unattractive person. It can still make you ugly in the, in the nose of God, if you know what I mean, if they carry the metaphor through. So I want you to imagine something, all right? Imagine a family in mid-40s, say, they've got family, maybe there's children still in primary school and children in secondary school, okay? So they're, they're already doing lots of running around and sorting out. The kids are in clubs, and then they're working maybe 35, 40, hours, maybe 50 hours during the week. And then at night, they come home to be taxi service for the kids, coming up and down to different things and sporting events and choir and and hockey or football or whatever happens to be. Then whenever they're finished being taxi driver, they're homework tutor. And then there's all the household chores to do. And that's before they start any work or connection or volunteering work with the church. It's busy. Let's be thankful for those who in that stage of life can give as much as they do to the church. Generosity with time when you don't have very much of time is incredible generosity. Because let's reimagine it now. Let's reimagine the same family with the same pressures, with the same workload. But instead of investing time and energy into people, uh, the, the, someone will just say, look, go away, kids. There's the iPad. There's the TV remote. Go watch something. Go play something. I'm too busy. I just need 10 minutes. Let me just rest. Or they're maybe quicker to go to the golf course on their, time, on their day off than to spend time with their wife or spend time with their husband or whatever it happens to be. And whenever the wife then maybe starts to express a wee bit of hurt or loneliness or start, you know, nags, he says, right, I better do something here. And so he, he 
I'll spend some money. I'll throw some money at the problem and I'll fix it. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll spend a couple of hundred pounds, I'll get a nice necklace, we'll maybe go away to a nice hotel for a couple of days, and that should keep her happy for a while. Now, what's the problem? Is he being generous with his money? Well, certainly it would, it would look that way. Kids have the things to keep them entertained, the TVs, the computers, the, the iPads. The wife has nice jewelry, they're getting away, to go, they get to tell their friends about how they're going away for the weekend. Generous with their money, but it's still quite an ugly picture of a Christian family, isn't it? So listen, I, what I'm saying is I think there are people who are generous with their time who can be just as beautiful, if not more beautiful, than people who are generous with money. Because you can make more money. You can make money that replaces the expenditure that you put out. But you can never get back the time that is spent with someone. That's why if someone takes time to spend with you, that's special. Because that's time that they've just handed over to you. So I'm not trying to create a hierarchy here where I'm saying that one type of generosity is more valid or more special than another. What I am saying, though, is that generosity looks differently and will be more precious depending on how it is expressed. The widow who gave her two mites to the collection plate had plenty of time but very little money, but she gave of her money and she gave generously, and Jesus commended her. But there are others who have plenty of money and very little time, and they're giving their time, and that is just as generous and precious in the eyes of Christ, I think. So in Philippians 4.18, we have the smell of generosity. I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice while pleasing to God. Again, the smell is pleasing to God. Now, without going into all the details of the passage, here's the gist. Paul is in prison and he's writing to the Philippians. The Philippian church have uh, heard that he was in prison, that he was on trial, and he was getting it tight. So what they did was they put a collection together, they financially put money and things together, uh, and a package like a love gift, uh, and sent Epaphroditus, who gave his time to, to travel from Philippi to Paul in prison. And this guy, Epaphroditus, by the way, if, if you want to track his story, Paul mentions him a couple times in the letters. Uh, his story is a great one if you try and track it down. But he comes with this gift, stuff to keep Paul going physically while he's in prison, but also emotionally and spiritually to remind him that the people of Philippi still love him. They haven't forgotten about him. They're not disowning him because he's in prison, because he's going through a tough time. They're not going to just forget about him or discredit him but he's still part of their church family. And Paul writes back to them and thanks them for this gift. And he says this, it's like a sweet aroma. Well, pleasing, not to himself, he says, but to God. One of the great things about Matthew heading off to Aberdeen is that our church gets to be part of a wider global mission. We get to be part of that wider work of seeing souls saved. And as you know, we're not part of a bigger denomination in this church. We don't have an umbrella body over us, which has pluses and minuses, but it gives us great freedom. But sometimes we can get quite inward looking then as a result. And yet in sending Matthew to Scotland, we're reminded that we're part of a bigger effort. We're part of something bigger. And that's so crucial for us as a church. And it's exciting for us as a church. It's the reason behind the Croatia teams over the last couple of years. It's the reason behind the prayer meetings focused on the persecuted church. 
but it is a privilege for us to send them. Because in doing so, we're commissioning someone saying, look, we believe God is going to use you. We believe he's going to take you. We believe that he is going to, to do something. Even if he's taking you from us, we're going to stand with you. That's as awesome as you can get. For me, as a pastor, that is one of the most exciting things that we can do, to be a sending church. But we're not sending Matthew off to help a guy in prison. There is a need in Aberdeen that's specific, and God is calling him into that. And so we get to send them, and if done right, that too can be a sweet aroma, well-pleasing to God. And the world will notice. Now, maybe no one in Newton Arts will notice. But the people of Aberdeen, I pray, will notice. And God will delight in our sending as a sweet aroma to him. We're partners. There are some who will send. There are some who will go. And that is the mission work. We are partners. It's a partnership, and God loves it. It's pleasing to him. That's what Philippi did in sending Epaphroditus to Paul to encourage him. Paul thanked him for it. That's the highest motivation to do anything. To, to give anything because it's pleasing to God. Again, this idea of smell. Instead of the Roman victory parade, it's a picture of the temple. And it's this idea of a sacrifice being given to God as an aroma. If you were to go to Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, it would be very different to what it is now. But what you'd have at different times during the day, there would be morning and evening sacrifices, and you'd smell barbecue all over Jerusalem. I think I would like to in Jerusalem at that time. <sighs> because there was these continual offering of sacrifices and incense, and they're taking the animal, and they're putting it on the altar, and there's the smoke ascending up to God, and it would waft through the city. Because people who hadn't maybe offered sacrifice, or people who had maybe been ignoring God or far from God, they would smell it, and it would be a reminder, oh man, I should be up at the temple. I should be there. There's people giving to the Lord, and I'm not there. And on top of that, there was incense going on at the temple, uh, and there would be uh, animals on the altar. And Paul is saying that this act of giving, this act of generosity in our churches, among our churches, is just like that picture at the temple where there's pure sacrifice going on. And Paul says, when you savor a church like that, it is beautiful to God. And I love that. It's pleasing to him. And again, it, it not always... It ought to be our highest motivation in giving like that. To please God as a fragrant offering. Not saying, well, I'm going to give, I suppose I, suppose I have to because the church needs it. Or, or like, I'm going to give whenever people can see me give and I'll make sure I get one of the big novelty checks and hand it over and I'll put it on Facebook and people can see. The act of giving, whether it is time, whether it is money, whatever, whatever it is, you're giving because I believe that God is worth the giving. And it's going to be pleasing Him. And I delight in Him so much. And I can't believe the fact that I could do something that would make Him delight in me. Now, notice that He says in this verse that he call, he's, it's a sacrifice, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. The fact that He uses sacrifice means we're thinking in terms of loss. We're offering something that we, we, that we feel it. I said, oh, well, I did that. It was a sacrifice. 
I had to give something up. I lack because I chose to put my resources somewhere else. I'm missing something here. I'm giving it away. It's sacrificial. And us in sending Matthew out, it's a sacrifice. It's going to hurt us. We're going to be less as a result. And yet we give joyfully because we give to the Lord and we give to his work. And by the way, one of the ways it hurts is because Matthew's been so involved in so many different aspects of the church. And there's going to be leaving gaps in a ministry in the Bible class, for example, in the cleaning rota, for example, or YF. There's someone who's going to be willing to step forward, take, sacrifice some of their time, sacrifice some of their talents to do that, to step in. It's, it's like what David said. David says, I will never offer to the Lord anything that didn't cost me something. Folks, do we give out of our abundance where we just don't really miss it? Doesn't really matter. A couple of copper coins in, sure it's fine. Doesn't change me anyway. Or do we give to the point where we're actually going to miss what we give? It's a sacrifice, but we're saying to God in the giving, God, you're worth it. I would gladly give it up for you. Uh, I'll go without this just to let you know how much I love you. I'll go with it because I want you to know that I, I value you more than any of those other things. So often you get asked about the question about amount. Well, how much should I give? And people talk about the tithe and 10%. That's an Old Testament thing. The New Testament doesn't talk anywhere about percentages. Uh, now, in the Old Testament, you see there was a tax system as well. And we saw in Ruth how people gleaned, and so they, didn't, uh, they were inefficient in, in, their, in their harvesting around the fields so that the poor and the needy could come and take. Realistically, in the Old Testament, they were taxed, or giving to God, closer to 25 to 30%. When you factored it all in, you're maybe thinking, oh, maybe I'm glad I don't have to give. You know, so maybe 10% doesn't sound so bad now. Don't get hung up on percentages. When it comes to the New Testament, they're talking about the heart, the heart of giving. Because what you need to realize, if you start getting pernickety about percentages, or whether it's from your gross or whether it's your net income, you're kind of already beat when it comes to how you're giving. Either your time or your money or whatever it is, you have to remember, we don't own any of it. It's all God's. It's 100% His. Anything that we have is because He has blessed it. Whether He's blessed our businesses to prosper, or he's, busy, he's blessed us to get the jobs that we have, the income that we have, the family that we have, the time that we have, it's all from him. In the prophet Hosea, God said, all the silver and all the gold is mine. It's all his. In Deuteronomy 8, he says, for it is God who gives you the power to get wealth. And so if God happens to give you anything or let you keep anything that, that's already his to begin with, that's what you're supposed to thank him for. That's why we're supposed to be thankful. And so instead of saying, oh my goodness, I have to give 10%. No, no, no. The attitude is, Lord, thank you for allowing me to keep 90% because none of this is mine. None of this is mine. That's the way to look at it. It all belongs to him. So when it comes to the amount, the New Testament doesn't say anything about percentages. But rather it talks about each day that he gives and his generosity to us every breath, every day is from him. We are to rejoice because he asks for very little in return. 
Paul said this in 2 Corinthians, says, Let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly, nor out of necessity, for God loves a, what? Cheerful giver. You know, the word cheerful literally means hilarious. God loves a hilarious giver. The only thing it talks about in Scripture is proportion. They talk about giving in proportion to your income. So if you make a little, we'll give proportionately. If you make a lot, give proportionately. That's fine. Someone once said, give according to your income, lest God make your income according to your giving. Now, I laughed when I saw that, and I actually thought that's actually really very profound. Because if I looked at what I gave over the last year, and then God says, okay, let's multiply that by 10, and that's going to be your income next year, I wonder if I'd be tempted to change my patterns for giving. How much would you make? So when people give generously, it's commended, and it's a sweet aroma to God and to the world around us. Confidence in Christ. We have victory in Jesus generosity and spirit. We have reason to give cheerfully. Then give you the third one very quickly. There's a smell of worship. You see, prayer will highlight the problem. We go to God and say, God, here's the problem. Praying for this. I'm concerned. I'm heavy laden about this. Praise responds to the provision. God, thank you for meeting the need. Brought it to you and you answered my prayer. Thank you. But worship is when we're focused on God himself. And in John 12, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are having dinner to celebrate the fact that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And in verse 3, Mary, therefore, because of what Jesus had done for Lazarus, Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Do you smell? That, that was the question that we started with this morning. Do you smell? A summer garden is full of smells, but now we can see how we smell beautiful to God by the confidence that we have in Christ and when we give and live generously. But perhaps this one is the most obvious one and the one that you're expecting to hear, the aroma of our worship. Lazarus watched. Martha worried. Lazarus whinged. Oh, you know, that money could have been, it could have been sold and used for the poor. But here's the thing. Mary saw Jesus as the greatest treasure. A close friend, a mighty savior, a powerful giver of life. And she worshiped him. She could have cared less about the people around her. Because Jesus was in the room. And she worshiped him, something that was in a way that was reserved for the kings and the priests and the dead. And she took a year's salary's worth, a year's salary worth of perfume and anointed him as an expression of her love and devotion and thanks for the worship and the person and the relationship that she had with Jesus. Now here's what I want you to take away from it, just to skip through it all. She worshipped in a way where she wasn't interested in what other people were thinking, but she worshipped in a way that nobody could ignore. The aroma filled the house. People may not have agreed with her. In fact, no one else agreed with her. No one else joined in with her doing this. But no one could have ignored how she felt about her Savior. 
Worship isn't really just about singing or music. Those things, though, are come naturally to people who are thankful. That's why we sing at weddings and not at, or and dance at weddings and not at funerals. Because when we're happy and when we're joyful and when we're thankful, we sing and we dance and we whistle and we there's a, there's a there's a bounce to us. And so it's fitting part of our worship. But I think worship is maybe the best picture of worship rather than music and bands and standing to sing together. Worship is better pictured as something that is us looking to God in such a way that we're not thinking about anyone else, but other people can't help but notice. I think that's a really good picture of worship. When we're so transfixed on Him, other people pay attention like a teenage couple who can't keep their hands off each other, you know, they're always holding hands or they're playing with the ear or the hair, and it's just like, oh, I just love, oh. And it doesn't matter how many other people are in the room, because there'll be some people and they'll go, oh, they're so cute. And then there's other people you're like, it'll pass, don't worry, they'll get over that, don't. But here's the thing. Regardless of how it makes you feel, you cannot doubt how they feel about one another in that moment. It fills the room. You notice it. Now, you react differently, but then Paul told us in Second Corinthians, for some, a smell of Christ is of life, and for some, the smell of Christ is of death. We react differently to it. There's a factory, or there was a factory in northern France where they used lavender in their perfumes. And every evening as the workers would head home and walk the streets of the little town, the whole village was filled with the sweet aroma of lavender because it had clung to the workers. And I wonder, as we finish our quiet times in the mornings, as we leave church for the week, and as whatever, as we spend time with God throughout the day, as we start that time in praise and we spend that time in the Word with the Lord, that aroma will cling to you throughout the day as you go into school, as you go into work, as you go to visit family, as you go to visit friends, and uh, whenever, and it clings to you. People will notice, and that is well-pleasing to God. Mary broke that box and poured out the ointment to Lord Jesus. The Bible says that the house was filled with the odor. Everyone there was made to be part of the experience. Whether they signed up to it or not, Lazarus wasn't interested, but he, he was there. He experienced it. He noticed it. He reacted to it. There was no denying for anyone that Mary was giving her all in an effort to honor Christ. Even those who criticized her could enjoy the fragrance of her sacrifice. It probably wasn't long before it drifted out into the street. Mary's hair probably smelt of that perfume for, for weeks afterwards. And people were like, what did I smell? Oh, something I did for the Lord. When the Lord is worshipped by his people in spirit and in truth as we are called to do, it is hard to keep it to yourself. The fragrance of our worship will fill not only this house, but our homes, and will follow us out into a lost and dying world. Like Mary, there will be people who will criticize for us. You're already giving too much. You're living too generously already. You need to rein it in. Life's not supposed to be like that. In verse 5, there we're told that, you know, Lazarus criticized, but there are those 
Do you know what the saddest thing is about this? The saddest thing, I think, for this is that there are Christians who live their entire lives, no doubt loving God, no doubt thankful for him, but we're more like Lazarus, who have been raised to life again and just watch everyone else do everything around us. There are those like, like Martha who experienced them and have been told time and time again, forget about all those other things. Make sure you spend time at the feet of Jesus and we still don't learn our lessons and we're still trying to be so dependent on ourselves and we never, ever get to be like Mary where we never, in all our walk with Christ, we never break the box. We never actually break the alabaster box. For all that Christ has done for us, we never get to the point where we say, okay, you are the most precious thing, and I am actually, properly, literally, physically going to give the most precious things I have in this world to you. I'm going to hand them over. Lord, here's my family. You can have them. Here's my retirement fund. Lord, you can have it. Here's my holiday time. Lord, you can have it. Here's my job, Lord, you can have it. And I will gladly hand it all over because I want my life to be lived in such a way so fixated on you with joyful appreciation of who you are that I'm not even going to try and force it. I'm not trying to make it cheesy for the people around me, but people will notice. I wonder... This is not something that can be forced. It's not a command. Nowhere in Scripture are we commanded to be generous because it is something that has to happen from the heart. But we are called to love, and I think it's part of loving. Here's my question. Folks, is it time to break the box? Is it time to worship in a way that you haven't really done before? Is it time to be generous, not, not just with money, not, not just with time, but with your gifts, with your talents, with, with, with your, with, uh, you know, just with the hobbies. Bring people into that circle. Bring people into it. If you're going to play golf, right, well, bring people along to the golfer. Bring people along in the bike rider. Bring people along in the craft. Bring people along and involve in it. I'm opening it up for people. I'm going to make it something. It's time to walk in victory confident that we know what the Lord is doing so we can step out it's not a leap out into the unknown, it's not a leap of faith it's trusting, walking by faith with Him because we know what the result's going to be and so we can give it to Him because we know it's in safe hands let's pray Heavenly Father I pray that our church would be a sweet aroma to you Lord, I pray that each home represented here this morning would be a sweet aroma to you. Lord, our marriages would be a sweet aroma. How we parent our children would be a sweet aroma. Our friendships would be a sweet aroma. Our work lives would be a sweet aroma. Our studies would be a sweet aroma. Lord, our quiet times our prayer times would be a sweet aroma. Lord, may our lives be consumed and transcended by being a sweet aroma to you.
So Lord, I pray, work in our hearts. Challenge us with this. Stir our, our hearts, Lord, to, to growth and fruitfulness in this. Lord, may it no longer just be an academic thing where it's about information, but uh, about an outpouring of our hearts. Lord, may it be real. Lord, you love a cheerful giver. And so, Lord, all that we have, we give to you. And we hold nothing back. And we would say, Lord, you are Lord of all. And we surrender it all. And we ask this in your name. Amen. We're going to ask the musicians to come up. We're going to sing one more. And then we'll go.